Welcome to Future Generations from Octopus. In this podcast, we take a look at our rapidly changing world and discuss what impacts this will have both on businesses and investments. We invite experts to discuss a wide range of topics and give their view on what businesses need to do, not only to contribute to the just transition, but also to thrive in this changing environment. Now, for complete transparency, our first two episodes are recordings from a webinar series that we put together for Octopus employees. Although some of the questions are specific to Octopus, we feel the content is just too good not to share more widely and think this will form a great starting point leading into a more traditional podcast format for future episodes. In episode two, our Impact and Sustainability Director, Kat Shenton, speaks to Chris Stark, Chief Executive of the Climate Change Committee, which is an independent organisation that advises the UK government on climate change. This is a really interesting talk that gives us an overview of what the road to net zero will look like for UK policymakers and what risks and opportunities this will offer for companies like Octopus. Here is Chris's introduction. So hi, Kat, and uh, hello to everyone who's joined us this morning. Um, Yeah, I'm Chris Stark. Um, So I head up this thing called the uh, Climate Change Committee. And um, I've been leading that now for about three years. I'll tell you a bit about the organization in a second. But um, uh, this is the the best job I've ever had and may well ever have in the whole of my career. It's a wonderful place to work. And I'll tell you all about why in a second. But um, I mean, I've been around climate change and energy policy now for over a decade, but um, I'm I'm a kind of classic policy wonk, you might call me. So I've always worked in government, uh, spent 10 years working in Whitehall, not on energy issues, not on uh, climate issues, um, and then moved uh, back to Scotland, where I'm from, as you can probably pick up from my accent, to get married, have kids. And I'm speaking to you from Glasgow today, where I've lived for the past five or six years. So I've worked all over government, basically, and my last job before this one was in the Scottish government working on energy and climate change, which is where I fell into all of this stuff. So I'm actually not, uh, I'm not a kind of classic environmentalist. I think it's important to say before we go into our uh, chat, I come at it much more from the economy uh, side of things. I worked on, I've worked on economic policy all the way through my career. Um, And I found myself working on energy issues uh, and then the climate stuff came next. And it is just a fascinating area to work in. So it, it's been about 10 years I've been looking at the issues now. And this job came along. So let me tell you about the CCC, as we're known, the Climate Change Committee. So this is, we are kind of odd, odd organisation. We're part of the public sector. We're a public body. But we were created in 2008 by a piece of legislation that we have in the UK that guides uh, what we do on climate change. That's the Climate Change Act. And that legislation is the, the really kind of interesting thing. Uh, it was it was the product of the last uh, year, really, of the Labour administration that we had then, when David Cameron was limbering up for government. And uh, David Cameron wanted to find a way of demonstrating that the Conservatives were green. And uh, Gordon Brown, who was the Prime Minister at the time, was, was really keen on having this piece of legislation on climate change. So this real moment when both sides of the uh, Parliament were in agreement about the need to do something about climate change, because of that, it's a really tough piece of legislation. So the legislation has this target for dealing with greenhouse gas emissions, which is probably what we'll end up talking about today. Uh, and this idea that it's the government's responsibility to guide the economy towards that long-term target. But the other really kind of cool thing about the, the Act is that it had this idea in its it, embedded in it that governments aren't that good at dealing with long-term goals in reality. Uh, so what they need is someone to keep them honest. And that's us. So the the Climate Change Committee is the the independent body. We're not part of government. That's the crucial part of it that offers advice on how to reach those long-term goals, also offers advice on the more short-term targets that we have in the UK. And that involves us building, we've been around now for 13 years, this really integrated view of all the things we need to do across the whole of the economy, whole of society, uh, to cut greenhouse gas emissions and and recently to get to this uh, this goal of net zero emissions, which we might talk about next. And so how far have you got with that roadmap? What's the piece of work that you've been working on most recently? 
We've got pretty far. So, I mean, remember, we're only here to provide advice, but we've been having a, a really good run of it recently. So we've had two or three years now of looking solely at this issue of, of net zero. Maybe I should say something about what net zero is. So net zero is it's become a term, actually, that remarkably has, has filtered out into the, into the kind of wider population. It used to be an incredibly you know, geeky, uh, narrow set of people who would, uh, who would deal with net zero. Now, net zero is, is both a slogan and, a, and actually a scientific term. Now, the, the scientific term is the important bit of it. So net zero just refers to the point when you've reached a balance between the amount of greenhouse gases that you're producing and the amount that you're removing from the atmosphere. So it's, it's net and zero means that you're, you're, the, the net impact is you're not adding any more greenhouse gases to uh, the atmosphere. Now, that's really important because those greenhouse gases, uh, notably carbon dioxide, which is the thing that you get when you burn fossil fuels, they are warming the planet. So we've been on this remarkable and pretty, pretty worrying uh, journey over the last 100, 150 years where we've been pouring carbon dioxide into the global atmosphere at really unprecedented rates. And that is now creating this, what we call, you call it greenhouse effect. We used to talk more about that. Basically, we're trapping more of the heat that comes back from the surface of the planet. Uh, and it creates this, this more, and more, more and more warming around the world. And we know exactly why that's happening. And it's all, about, it's all about mainly what we do with fossil fuels. So we've got to stop burning fossil fuels. We've also got to start uh, growing trees and restoring soils so that we can bring some of that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and, and, and stabilize the global temperature. So what we've been looking at is, is net zero for the UK. Now, every country in the world eventually is going to have to grapple with this because it's, it really is a global goal. But the idea in the Climate Change Act is that we, as one of the leading uh, developed economies, one of the major economies, needs to set the net zero goal and then achieve it. And that club of global, of, of, of rich, rich modern, modern economies need to come with us. And that will help guide us towards a global goal of net zero towards the second half of this century, which we think would be uh, where we need to end up. So what that means for us is that we've been looking at all of the steps we need to take across every sector of the economy in transport, uh, notably in the power sector, also in uh, decarbonizing buildings and in industry, uh, farming, uh, also what we do with the land that we have, the natural resources as well. So right across the whole of the economy. And we most recently published a report in December, which is by some distance the most detailed report we've ever produced about how the UK can get itself to net zero emissions by 2050. And, and the short summary of that is that 2050 might sound like it's a very long way away, but actually what we need to think about is, is, uh, is in terms of asset lives. The thing that is causing those greenhouse gas emissions is our use of fossil fuels. We use fossil fuels because of the, the assets and the technologies that we, that we use today. So the cars that we drive, uh, the gas boilers we have in our home, uh, the big bits of plant machinery that industry use. If we want to get to net zero, we've got to replace those assets. And actually the average life of one of those assets is between 15 and 20 years. So if you bought a, if you bought a boiler tomorrow, it's quite likely you'll be using it in 15 to 20 years time. So when you think in those sort of timescales, actually 2050 means that the critical date is 2030. So you've got to get to the point by 2030, right across the economy where you've stopped selling those high carbon assets, and you've started purchasing and using those zero carbon assets. And when you look at what the government is planning, you can see them thinking in the same way about it. So most notably, uh, the, the Prime Minister's plan to phase out the sale of petrol cars and diesel cars by 2030. That's the kind of change that we're going to see over the next decade. And government, of course, has a big role in guiding us towards that. So that's what we've been trying to present to uh, the outside world and to government about the steps that need to be taken uh, over the next 10 years to guide us on the way to that 2050 journey. It sounds like a really, really big ask and something that <laughs> needs to happen really quickly. Uh, how possible is that? I mean, how, how worried should we be? Oh, I think so. You should be simultaneously worried about climate change, but also hopeful about our ability to address it. And I, I really am hopeful. Now, why do I say that? Uh, and, you know, you could look at some of the charts that we look at of the global transition here. And what you see is something that looks like a mountain. You know, if the, the, you, you may know that we signed an agreement in 2015, the Paris Agreement, as it's known. Every country of the world signed that. 
And the Paris Agreement was a remarkable bit of French diplomacy. It basically, it reignited the, the, uh, the climate change uh, discussion in a very positive way. So the, 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 it's worth just dwelling on that for a second. What we did in 2015 in Paris was agree amongst every, every country of the world that we would try and keep the temperature rises that are due to man-made climate change to well below two degrees centigrade with best efforts to one and a half. Uh, and that involves us getting to this global goal of net zero probably around 2070, perhaps a little bit later than that. And that is that's extremely difficult because if you look at global emissions, what you see is that over, over the last history, they've been going up the way. Think of a mountain. We've been scaling that mountain. Uh, we now need to get to the peak of the mountain and come back down the other side. And uh, it does look like a kind of handbrake turn in global emissions. And it will be difficult to achieve that. But the reason I've been more and more optimistic about it is because of, in particular, one factor. And that is that the alternatives to using fossil fuels, especially in uh, the way that we generate electricity, are now as cheap or cheaper than using fossil fuels. So that's a set of conditions that we haven't seen before. Uh, it means that over the course of the next 10, 20 years, we need to move away from burning coal especially, but eventually also burning natural gas and using petrol and diesel to these cleaner alternatives. But we're now in a position where those cleaner alternatives are cheaper than the, than the, fossil, fuel, the fossil fuel things that we use now. So that will fundamentally change the economics of this transition that's ahead of us. We're right at that turning point now. You can actually look at global data from uh, power price auctions and you can see that renewables are now as cheap and in many cases cheaper than gas and, and coal. And that is a big, big recipe for disruption. Uh, and of course, in the power sector, you know, that's a big a, a disruption we're already seeing. You can see that here in the UK. But it's also a big disruption for all those other sectors that might use that cheap power, including notably the transport sector. So you're seeing that big disruption happening now in the automotive sector. Every single automotive firm is now committing to producing battery-powered vehicles. It's utterly remarkable to see how quickly it's happening. And the reason they're doing that is because those vehicles are cheaper to produce and they're much, much cheaper to run uh, for the consumer. So you know that, that's actually going to be a saving to the economy now than, than continuing to use petrol and diesel cars. So we're going to see more and more of those kind of disruptions and here in the UK, we've been modeling a lot of that. So we've been, we started off a lot of this stuff with the, the journey we've been on with renewables in the power sector. And now we're committing to this really uh, advanced date for the phase out petrol and diesel cars. We're gonna to need to see more of those kind of changes, but of course the UK can lead a lot of that. So I, I'm more and more optimistic that we can do it. But the, the secret sauce of all this is it needs a lot of investment. That's been a big part of the work that we've done we need a lot of capital expenditure across the whole of the economy, a whole of society. And the numbers here are big. So at the moment, we probably spend about 10 billion pounds a year. So we're investing 10 billion pounds a year in the power sector to decarbonize it. That's what's paying for all the wind farms that we are um, throwing up in the sea. And that 10 billion a year is, 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 a, is a sizable chunk. Now the consumers, consumers are paying that back through electricity bills. We've got to scale that up, though, to about 50 billion pounds a year by 2030 and then keep it at that level for the next 20 years. And that's what delivers you net zero across the economy. And that's exciting because we can now look at what those investments are in transport or in buildings or in decarbonizing industry or in farming or in aviation or any other sectors. It's literally every bit of the economy that needs to make this kind of investment. And that is a big investment for the economy to make. So think of 50 billion a year. That's adding about an eighth to the amount of investment that we were doing before the pandemic. But the really exciting news about all of that investment is because we have this cheaper and cheaper electricity price, because the devices and technologies that we'll be using in the future are electrified and tend to be much, much more efficient than the, the old fossil fuel versions, that it reveals this big saving to the consumer over time as well. And eventually that saving cancels out the investment cost. That's completely game-changing because it means that the overall cost to the economy is actually really low of this transition. Now, we used to talk about it being a big cost. It's absolutely not a big cost. It's less than 1% of GDP each year, closer to zero, actually. So really exciting to have all of that. So we have all of the, kind of, all of the bits of the recipe now to bring it together and to see that transition happen. 
So of course that that's great news for Octopus because we we probably called a little bit of that. We're a really big investor in renewable energy. We have Octopus Energy, which is selling renewable energy and supporting the transition to electric vehicles. What what other areas do you think we could be helping the path to net zero by unlocking capital? Are there specific investment areas that you think we should be looking at? So maybe I'll answer this in a few ways. I mean, the way that we view the world is through what we call the sectors. And we call them that just because we've got good data on where the greenhouse gas emissions come from in these sectors across the economy. And the things we look at are the things I've been talking about, actually. So the most important of them, and it's, it's, I have been labouring this point because it is the most important sector, is the way that we generate electricity. So the broad grand strategy here is to decarbonise the source of electricity that we have, so that the, the way that we generate electricity, and then to alongside that electrify the economy, which is a really, really good strategy because it's a very integrated way of cutting emissions. It doesn't get us all the way. We need something on top of that electrification, which is a you know, combination of cutting demand for the high carbon goods in the first place, uh, a new fuel source, which is hydrogen, which again, we've got to talk about because that's going to have a source as well. But then this other bit, the green bit, uh, which is the net and net zero, which is all the stuff that we do in the natural environment to mop up the, the carbon dioxide for the residual emissions that we can't, those sectors that we can't get all the way to zero. But when it comes to the sectors, that's where the big challenges lie. So we're actually doing pretty well now on the power sector, although we could have gone faster, I think, to cut emissions. But we've, we've done more than other major economies have to cut emissions from power. And we are more and more confident that we can build the kind of electricity generation system in the future that will be based on renewables. So in particular, offshore wind in the future, offshore wind and solar. What we haven't been doing in other parts of the economy is making similarly ambitious commitments uh, to cut emissions. So the biggest single sector in terms of emissions at the moment is transport, uh, surface transport and aviation. Uh, surface transport, we've got an idea of what to do, and it's largely about moving from petrol and diesel to electric. Uh, but we've also got to think about uh, long distance uh, road transport, where we haven't got such a clear, you know, an easy answer to how to decarbonise it. It's not an answer that we can, we can come up with solely in the UK either. Um, we've also got to think about um, some of the areas where we really haven't been making much progress at all. And crucially, and there's two of them really that I'll pick out. One is, one is the buildings challenge. So we've got something approaching 30 million buildings in the UK. Every one of them is going to have to be decarbonized. And at the moment, almost all of them are heated using fossil fuels. That is a huge challenge. And it's, it's not going to be as easy, I would say, as the challenge of decarbonizing the power sector or indeed the surface transport sector. So buildings is an area where we need to invest to make those buildings more energy efficient. And then eventually we've got to replace the heating source for those buildings. And the interesting thing for me is that that's right across the country. So it's regionally spread as well. It's not going to be a, a, you know, a change that's concentrated in the southeast. Lots and lots of jobs attached to that. But I kind of, I kind of reluctance to get going on it because of the scale of it. So I think that's one area. And the other area I'll just pull out because it's difficult and be, but because I think there are lots of options here is in industry itself. So the manufacturing industries, construction uh, you know, the kind of heavy industries, as we used to call them. They are big, big users of fossil fuels. Um, each of those industries needs to be fully decarbonized as well. That introduces the question of whether we might be doing things like capturing carbon in those industries rather than moving away from fossil fuels altogether. We will need new industries as well to produce these low carbon fuels that we'll need alongside electricity and no notably hydrogen being one of them. And you can almost find these challenges really in every every section of the economy. And I suppose that's, that's the answer to your question is that we've got to move away now from talking about the things that we've been doing well for the last decade, in notably the power sector, into all these other challenges that we see across the economy. And so I'll just maybe kind of, that'll just kind of answer the final point of my question. This is if you look at the, the shape of the emissions chart over the next uh, 30 years for the UK, which is the thing that we've just published in December, what you would see something that looks like an inverted S. So it, it starts like here and it comes in like this kind of shape, if I can put it that way. So the, the first part of that S is a bit like a plateau. So despite all this huge activity that's now taking place in government and in industry to focus on net zero, the first part of our journey over the next 30 years is quite flat when it comes to emissions reduction. And that's because we've not been doing enough of the, the investment in those other sectors that I talked about. So the challenge over the next five to 10 years is to scale up that investment 
outside of the power sector. Then over the 2030s, you get this really sharp emissions reduction. That's the emissions reductions really coming through as those investments start to flow through into the real economy. And then over the 2040s, it, it plateaus again as we get to the very, very last emissions reductions, which tend to be a bit harder. So that kind of story overall is one that I think you should have in your mind when you're thinking about the work that you do across, um, across all of Octopus's businesses. Uh, you know, that, that, that challenge of scaling up is really a challenge over the next five to 10 years. And it, and it filters through into, into absolutely everything that uh, you will cover. Uh, so it really is a sort of filter through which you should be thinking, I think, about all your investment decisions. Indeed. Can I just come back a little bit to that buildings challenge? Because clearly that's huge. And as you say, um, there just hasn't been enough you know, progress on that to date. How much do you think will end up with the government using a stick? And what kind of legislative or other risks do you think exist for investors in real estate? And what and sort of the, the other side of that is, is what kind of opportunities exist for startups to start to address some of these, the needs that we need for those, those buildings? Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I do tend to try and put a positive spin on this, but you, let's be clear on this. This is a, an enormous elephant that we're trying to consume here. We've got to start somewhere. And that's, I think that's the issue that we haven't even begun consuming the trunk. So, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a big, big challenge here. The easiest bit of the building's challenge is new build. So if you think of it in those terms, the, the bit that we really should be motoring on now is from, from this day forward, really, we should be throwing up new properties, new buildings, new offices, new homes that are, are fit for that net zero future. That means especially that they are the two broad things that we need to achieve are firstly, they've got to be energy efficient. They've got to be built to, in such a way that they're not leaking that heat that's, that's needed for those buildings. And we have historically be, been pretty terrible at that. So we build a lot of crap buildings in this, in this country. So those challenges need to be addressed. So the, the new builds need to be much more energy efficient. And the second part of the challenge for new builds is they've got to be ready for a low carbon source of heat. So there's, it's really stupid to put fossil fuel heating into a new build if you know that over the next 10 years you're going to be taking it out again. It's a straightforward cost issue. So for those new builds, they need to be ready for that. That means either connected to what we call a district heating network, which is something you find a lot in the continent, which is a hot water pipe rather than a gas pipe. So it's, it's, it runs, so if you go to somewhere like Denmark, you find these really extensively, these running hot water around the town, which you can then take the heat from in the same way that you would take the gas from the, the gas main. Now that, that allows you to heat that building and we can build those kind of properties now. So the other alternative is to use something called a heat pump, uh, which takes the energy from the air outside or the ground outside uh, uses electricity to scale that that up into and to concentrate it into a heat source that you can then use to heat the building. So that's new build, and uh, you know it's a big challenge, but it's one that we can certainly get on and tackle now. So I really don't have any time for people to think that that's a difficult challenge. It's the the biggest challenge is in retrofit. So we've got we've got this you know twenty million plus homes across the country, and for me the really interesting thing is that the the, the types of buildings that we have types of offices and homes that we have across the UK vary enormously. So I'm in Glasgow today. I'm in a beautiful old Edwardian red sandstone tenement, as we call it. It's a big grand, grand flat kind of mansion building, mansion house um, uh, that you, you might, you don't find anywhere else. So, you know, I, I have, a, I have a whole floor in that building. It's very little I can do to to make that more energy efficient because it's listed as well. So I'm very fortunate to be in here. I've got stained glass windows next to me here. That's They'd like to like to build in Glasgow in those days, um, but it's going to be a big challenge to to address that, which Glasgow itself is going to have to tackle because you won't find those kind of properties. You certainly wouldn't find those kind of properties in Plymouth. So for me, the really interesting thing is that we're going to have to have a tailored approach across the country to doing those two things that I talked about. Firstly, improving the energy efficiency of those buildings as far as it's possible to do so. And then secondly, replacing the heat source in those buildings progressively over the next 20 years. And that needs a plan locale by locale. So from my perspective, that's quite exciting to think that way about it, because we reckon there's probably 200,000 new jobs in that, in that transition over time. But to make it all work, we're going to need some, firstly, some big policies to be put in place by the government. So one of the things I'm looking out for this year is the government's plan for decarbonizing buildings. Uh, it will be a combination of setting the right standards over time. So 
setting the right energy performance standards for buildings, new build and existing. There might be some tougher edged policies there, Kat, you, you mentioned that. There might be, for example, regulations that kick in at the point of sale. So, you know, you need to have invested in that property over the time that you have owned it or lived in it uh, before you sell it uh, to make it more energy efficient. So that's the kind of thing the government is thinking about right now. Really interestingly, what well, the other thing the government is, is looking at, and this is a really good policy, I think, is that some of those standards might be applied to mortgage lenders. So if you can imagine the idea that the, 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 the banks and the, and the building societies that are offering loans to property owners uh, might be required to have a, a, an energy performance standard across the portfolio of those assets that increases over time. Really interesting because that would give the incentives to uh, the lenders to then give cheap finance for the investments that we would need to see to improve the energy efficiency over time. So we need those kind of conditions in place. Then we need a set of incentives to make the, uh, the, the, the job of energy efficiency improvements cheaper. So we've got those kind of policies in place at the moment. We'll need more of that in the future. We'll also need big policies to drive us towards low carbon heat. This is one of the areas where we really don't have that kind of incentive at the moment. So that's probably looking more to the Treasury, making the incentives different so that we're not, uh, we're not making a penalty to use electricity, which is increasingly green, as an alternative to gas, for example. So that's something that the Chancellor will need to look at. Uh, and then you've got, to, you've got to get cracking on it. So the kind of final part of this and the building story overall is the stories about uh, the local plans. Uh, our recent advice is that we really need regional energy planning, as we've called it. What we need is town by town, a plan for decarbonizing the heat source, especially. So we can't keep using gas into the future. So what is the alternative? Is it a, is it a, a, a heat pump based system? Is it a district heating system? Or might it be something like a hydrogen based system, especially if you're producing that low carbon hydrogen down the road? So a place like Teesside might be doing just that. So again, it goes back to this really interesting chance that we will have a different plans in place right across the country that we're going to have to frame up and start to put into put into into action over the next decade. So I was really struck by the idea that if you build a new home, you might have to take the boiler out in 10 years time, um, which would make me think twice about putting a new boiler into my own home. Uh, yeah. Um, but it, so it feels to me like there are two things that there's a risk to not thinking ahead when we're building new things or when we're investing in our own properties, but also that there is potentially a huge opportunity for small companies to step up to the challenge of delivering all of the low carbon heating that we're going to need across all of that built environment. So it's really yeah, that's exactly right. And for me, the heating thing really is right at the heart of this. So if, if, if we're being serious about net zero, then we're going to have to really get serious about the heating question. Uh, we've, I mean, people in my field have talked about this for a long time, but I, it's only now I think that we're really getting serious about it. So just to go back to one of the points in your, in your question, Kat, we produced a report um, about a year and a half ago that looked at that question of what is the date that we need to stop putting gas boilers into new homes? And to be honest, it was, we did a whole report on, on, Bill, on, on homes and the strategies for homes across the UK. But this was one of the tamer recommendations, if I, if, you know, in, my, in my mind at least. So when we published that report, we said 2025, we've got to stop building homes with gas boilers in them. And to be honest, was that there was more in that report than just that, that date. But that was the one, that was the thing that the press really grabbed because it was, it was imminent. It was a, a kind of obvious example of things changing. And we took a lot of heat for that. So politically, we were, we were dragged through um, many of the right-wing press were really upset about that, that 2025 date. But interestingly, the, the Chancellor, about a fortnight after we published that report, accepted that recommendation in a, in a budget speech. That was Philip Hammond at the time. And that's now become a standard. So 2025 is the date that we will stop putting gas boilers into new homes. And the really interesting thing from my perspective was that I had not appreciated what a strong signal that was going to be to the installer community that things were changing. So actually this is quite a small commitment in this grand scheme of things because it's it's only for new builds and it's only from 2025 onwards. Uh, so it's not an enormous change in the grand scheme of things. But for if you were a gas boiler installer, if you were someone who plans and constructs and lays gas pipes, if you are in the construction sector, that was an enormous change. So that, from my, that kind of started the starting pistol from me, that fired the starting pistol on, on the bigger change that we now need to see. 
And I think now we're at the point of getting real about that. So those plans that I talked about across every town and city in, in the UK are really going to make it real that we have an enormous installer challenge. Uh, and I think it's better to frame that up as a positive development. This is, yes, it is a big challenge, but it's one that we can, we can address. In fact, we've done it before. So we've moved from coal to town gas. So this building was, when it was thrown up in 1901, was, was, on, was, was being uh, heated with town gas and the electricity in it was the, the, bulb, the light that was the light system was in it was a gas system as well. We moved from that to natural gas. Uh, we did that journey quite easily in the 1970s. Uh, you know, my mom still talks about the day the gas man came around and switched around all the appliances. Now we've got to do it again. So we can do that, and it is an enormous opportunity if you're a, if you're in a small business thinking about uh, you know what, where where things might head next. The the different technologies that we'll see deployed, many of them electric throw open all sorts of big opportunities to innovate around the tariffs that we'll have for paying for energy in the future, the smart systems that we'll have in homes in the future. Uh, there is lots of opportunity to do this more cheaply than the kind of assessments that we've been spelling out to the government. So I see this really as an enormous growth area. We, we've conservatively put that estimate of 200,000 new jobs, uh, looking at the challenge of, of energy efficiency and low carbon heat installations. It could be much more than that potentially. So it's the kind of thing that you really want to get going during a, you know, as you come out of a pandemic as a way of, of helping the economy to recover. So I, I hope there's lots of that enterprising uh, consideration going on right now about what that, that transition is going to look like. I've got a lot of questions coming in from people. Cool. So um, and I do there's kind of other topics I want to get to, hopefully carbon tax and, and future risk to business. Cool. But let me just ask some of these questions that are coming in around um, the built environment topic. So is um, is heat pump technology good enough and how much subsidy would be needed by government to get a rapid rollout starting right now? Is there a role for green hydrogen for heating in countries like the UK or not? There's a lot of questions in that. <laughs> we deal with heat pumps. So yeah, I think heat pumps are good enough, but, but we're gonna have to get going to, to see whether that is the case. Now, there's no technical barrier to using a heat pump to heat a home. But what is true is that it is usually better that the home is made more energy efficient before you install a heat pump, because it does work in quite a different way. We have quite an unusual climate in this country where uh, you, the temperature moves from very cold to actually quite warm, uh, particularly if you're, uh, you know, in, in southeast. And that's a challenge because the, the the buildings themselves tend not to be particularly energy efficient. What we've done over the years is instead use a really rapid heat source, so burning coal initially or now gas, which you can just turn on and off quickly. Heat pumps gradually heat a property, and and therefore it's better if that property can retain that heat. So yes, we can use heat pumps. A couple of questions on that. Do we have the energy networks reinforced to the extent that we might need to use those energy networks for all the needs that we'll have in the future for transport and for heat? That's an open question. Um, are we sure that heat pump is the technology that we want to push towards is the biggest question. So we, we need to make an assessment of that. But we, we don't really see any technical barrier to using heat pumps. The biggest barrier of all is the consumer offering. So it tends to be more expensive to use a heat pump to heat a home than than to use a gas boiler unless you've got a very energy efficient uh, house or property. So we need to look at that challenge overall. And that's a strange challenge, isn't it? Because most of the costs of the transition that the UK has been on so far to a more decarbonized society have been uh, sitting on the energy bill. So they've been sitting on the electricity bill, more to the point. So consumers have been paying for all of the renewables that we're now installing onshore and offshore. And those costs are sitting on electricity bills which is making electricity more expensive uh, than the alternative. And the other penalty here is that gas has a lower tax applied to it than electricity as well. So you get this double penalty there, which the Chancellor could look at. So most of us have dual fuel tariffs. We pay for our gas and our, and our lecky. You could see a situation where you flip the policy costs from electricity to gas. So the consumer initially sees no impact whatsoever but the incentive changes dramatically to move towards electricity in the future as a, as a source, which is a good, strong, sensible thing to do if you think you're gonna be producing more and more of that green electricity in the future. That's the kind of thing the Treasury is thinking about right now. Uh, so that kind of, that kind of uh, change would really, really dramatically change the outlook for heat pumps, I think. So 
So I hope that's the way that the government is thinking about it. That's certainly the advice that we've been giving. If it's not going to be heat pumps, it needs to be something else. So the two, the two big alternatives are uh, either using district heating, which I've mentioned a couple of times, which I have to say I'm a big fan of because in towns and cities, you can imagine a world where uh, over the next 20 years, we are replacing gas with those heat pipes, those water pipes that you find very commonly in very cold countries in, uh, on the continent. Uh, and over the course of 20 years, let's say, that is a really meaningful plan. And basically, you'd, instead of having a boiler, you'd have something called a heat exchanger. So it would take the heat from the hot water and you would use that to heat your home in the same way as you use a gas boiler. So that kind of plan, again, would require uh, plans to be drawn up for each town. But you could, create, you could easily do that. And effectively, you'd be moving back to sort of municipal heat systems. That, that's, again, what you find in places like Germany and Scandinavian countries. Uh, interestingly, one of those heat sources could be the river running through the town. So I'm in Glasgow, the, the River Clyde runs through Glasgow. Uh, you, could, you can take the heat from the Clyde to heat the city using a heat pump. So it's, a heat pump is just like a big reverse fridge. So you can submerge something in the Clyde, which basically takes the, the heat that's in the water of the Clyde, concentrates it and uses it to heat that municipal heat system that we might have. So that's one, that's one I think, good route course requires a lot of planning and investment to make that happen but it was, it's a kind of least disruptive route actually in many ways for towns and cities and the other route is the is the one that's having a lot of focus at the moment which is the hydrogen route so hydrogen is a, a fuel source that you can burn without causing those greenhouse gas emissions and you could have a system of heat supply using hydrogen instead of natural gas but you've got to then work out where the hydrogen comes from and that's the big challenge you can produce hydrogen uh, by what we call electrolysis, which is basically you take water and pass a current through it. You probably did that in your chemistry class. It's the, it's the gas that you, that you can light and it pops. That's, that's the hydrogen. Um, but you need a lot of electricity generation to produce that hydrogen. And the other alternative is you could take natural gas, put it through a process, capture the carbon, store that carbon uh, offshore where we used to have oil and gas, and that produces hydrogen too. That's not a zero carbon process, but potentially that could produce some hydrogen. In the end, I think we'll have a mixture of these things. So we'll, we'll have a bit of hydrogen, and especially in those places that are, that's producing hydrogen, we reckon there'll be five or six places across the country that produce low carbon hydrogen. I mentioned Teesside, uh, near me there's Falkirk, you know, those kind of places where you've already find the oil and gas refining taking place, good places to start. So those towns might well produce and use hydrogen for heat. Uh, in other places, I often talk about Cornwall. Cornwall is not going to have hydrogen heating. It would be, a, it would be an odd decision to make that, that move. So that's an area that more obviously would use heat pumps. So I think we need to come to an accommodation. It's less about the what, actually, and more about the how. So, you know, the, we, we have lots of technical fixes for this challenge. It's more about how you put processes in place to get to a decision on what to do next. And for the consumer, I think that's probably what they need. A lot of opportunity in there if we can find the yeah. right places. I've got a ton of questions. I'm just, um, if you just give me a minute, I'm trying to, there's a lot more around heat pump technology um, and ways we can do that. But I think we've covered a lot on the built environment. Um, can we just step back to um, this sort of path to net zero has, has two really big elements. One, that there's, there's decarbonizing. And then there's removing carbon at the end of that. So can I ask you, yeah. I think it'd be, if we've got a little bit of time, probably another 10 minutes. Um, can we, could you talk us through a little bit around the risk of carbon taxes or carbon cost um, in that reduction path and what, what that might look like for businesses? And then if we have time, I would like to talk about what kind of technologies exist in that carbon removal space and where there might be opportunities to invest there? Okay, so let me, let me do a very quick tour on, on carbon taxes and what we call carbon pricing. So um, for a long time, economists who've looked at climate change have, have noted that it would be very good if there was a higher price attached to, the, to, uh, to carbon or to fossil fuel use. And that's mainly because we don't. You, you, the, the total impact on the on the on the environment is not captured in the cost of fossil fuels at the moment. So, what we call an externality for those of you who care about the, the economics of it. And therefore, if you if you put a higher price on it, we'll use less of it. So that's the kind of that's the logic of it. 
So for a long time, we've talked about that. So there's various ways in which you can achieve that higher carbon price. The easiest way is to, is to simply apply a tax on using it. And that's what we do in many cases. So tax on fuel that you put in your car, for example, um, the uh, tax on, uh, on coal that's supplied to stop us using it in the power sector. So that carbon tax is something that is actually very effective in some circumstances in, in, in changing our patterns of consumption. But interesting, I think, there's an alternative way through this, which is to not use taxes, but instead to regulate or to set a standard. And actually, my view is that that's been the more effective route. So let me just explain what I mean by that. So let's look at the challenge of decarbonizing transport. So one way you could do that is by having a fuel duty escalator. Where you apply a higher tax each year on petrol and diesel. And eventually people think, right, I've had enough of this. I'm going to switch to something where I'm not using that petrol and diesel. I'm going to buy an electric car instead. And that you know, might work, but it rather depends on the government's willingness to keep putting that tax in place in perpetuity. It tends not to be a very popular step. The alternative is to say, okay, We've got to get to an electrified transport system. Let's name the date that we will do that. And we'll name the date that we'll stop selling those petrol and diesel cars. And that date is 2030. That is a more effective strategy for driving us towards uh, that low carbon transport system that we need, because everyone understands what's going to happen next. You still need an element of carbon pricing to get the incentives right so that it's not a short, sharp uh, and dramatic change. So that will be a challenge for the chancellor. But probably what we will see to guide this transition I'm talking about is more of the use of those standards over time. So that, that we've talked a lot about heat, for example, the date that you've got to stop selling and installing gas boilers is 2033 in our latest assessment. Uh, that's just what comes out of the 2050 target because you know that you'll be using those boilers for 15, 20 years. So working towards that is a good goal because everyone will understand what to do. So I think it's a combination of these things, and I don't think we should view carbon taxes as a threat um, unless they are levied in the wrong way. So one of the, the crucial thing is, that, yes, it is important to put a, a, a higher price on carbon and for that to grow over time. But it is also important to make sure that, that we're not exposing uh, what we call trade exposed industries, those industries that might go somewhere else if the taxes are too high. We need to protect those industries from those costs and encourage them to decarbonize. So I think that's the twin challenge is going to make carbon, going to put the penalty up for using carbon whilst also supporting businesses to decarbonize. We reckon that the overall challenge across the economy is probably to, to shield those businesses from about from those costs to the tune of about two to three billion pounds a year. That means the exchequer has got to kind of stand in front of those costs so that we encourage those businesses that presently use lots of fossil fuels to change uh, to help them to decarbonize. But once you've got decarbonized industry, that's you, you've done it, you know, you've made it. So the challenge is to do that really as quickly as possible. And we see lots of opportunities for that to happen. And it's not solely about raising taxes. The last thing I'll say in this is that there is a massive challenge lurking here for the chancellor. And it's mainly in the, that transport story. So if you are in the treasury right now, you've got a, that 2030 date is a massive fiscal risk introduced by the prime minister. So £28 billion a year is raised through fuel duty at the moment, a little bit more from the broader set of road taxes that we have in place. So that is all going to diminish if, as we move away from using petrol and diesel. So we're going to have to think in the round about all of these big challenges. Uh, and the Chancellor is going to have to think about where he raises taxes. And one of those areas is probably going to be on fossil fuel use. So think about that challenge of raising the price of carbon and then encouraging us to move away from it. That's something I think we will see towards the end of this year, more and more from the treasury on, because apart from anything else, he's gonna to have to act on this or he's gonna lose a lot of that revenue that he gets from the transport taxes at the moment. Thank you. So the message is the same. I mean, there, there is no route out of decarbonization, but it, the, the risks to businesses will be both from the increased cost of using carbon, but also this risk that legislation might change and high carbon products will just be- yeah. I think that for, for a business, there are two risks. And this is so Mark Carney, the old Bank of England governor, who's been amazing on this, actually, talks about broadly, there are two climate risks. Uh, there's the there's the physical risk of climate change itself, which we often understate and underprice. You can see that in Texas right now. So, you know, we the, the impact of climate change is not often thought through and isn't priced into especially infrastructure assets properly. Um, you know, the, the kind of 
concentration of CO2 we have in the atmosphere now, we've had before, we didn't, we've had it 3 million years ago when the sea was 20 meters higher than it is today. So the sea level rise is a big, big issue. Think of all the critical infrastructure around the world that sits at sea level at the moment. So that kind of physical risk of climate change is a real one. If you're in a town and city in the UK, it, the building you're in is probably not fit for the kind of change in temperatures that we will see over time. It probably doesn't have enough air conditioning. It probably doesn't have the shutters that you find on windows in the continent, for example, that kind of change. So that's the physical risk. But the more interesting one from my perspective is the transition risk, as Mark Carney calls it. That is, is your business ready for that net zero future? Is it, is it you know, producing things in a low carbon way? Is it exposed, therefore, to the risk that you know, at some point we're going to need to transition economies towards net zero? And I think that's the one to focus on, really. If you get ahead of that, and eventually, as the financial disclosure rules kick in, those businesses are going to be more valuable. So, you know, that set of rules that's been put in place through something called the TCFD framework, the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, trips off the tongue. It's hugely important because uh, over time, it's going to become mandatory. And uh, that's basically about flushing out those two risks. How exposed are you to the, the physical changes that are coming in the climate? And how exposed is that business uh, and those investors, therefore, to the, to the transition to net zero? And I think as we get our heads around that, that will become more and more meaningful and, and, you know, we'll look more to that financial disclosure rule uh, as a means to drive the, the change that we need to see than, than the, the kind of policies I've been talking about today. So if you if you were talking to a room full of entrepreneurs that were setting up small or, or medium sized businesses, what what would be your message to them? So my message to them is, 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 is get serious about it, lean into it and, and just imagine a world where we have met net zero. I'm, I would encourage them all to think about the world when we am required to think about the world. So we are often thought to be forecasting in the CCC. Well, actually, what we're doing is hindcasting. We, uh, we stand in the future and look back. So the, kind of, we are this re- I mentioned that we are an odd public body. One of the reasons is that we, we, we know that we will re- hit net zero by 2050. And we stand in 2050. And what we're doing actually is looking back to see what pathway we need to follow to get to that. I think I I would encourage you all to take that kind of view because it's one of the very few occasions when we can be sure we will do something. We'll either do it willingly with all the positive benefits that come from that or we'll be led to it in a kind of chaotic way. But by hook or by creek, we're going to have to get to net zero. So thinking about what the world looks like in a net zero economy uh, you know what in a net zero world what does what does the economy look like sorry to frame reframe that properly it really opens your eyes as to where the opportunities lie so if you're an entrepreneur just think about the extent to which we use fossil fuels now and the extent of change that's necessary in a zero carbon world and you will find you are you are literally kicking apples around the proverbial orchard when it comes to the opportunities there every single bit of our lives will be impacted by that I, I think it will be a strongly positive impact in our lives. So this is not going to be, I don't think it will be a chaotic transition. I think we'll quite quickly move towards those things. We're going to have to deal with some difficult issues. We've talked about some of them here. But think of it broadly as a a positive disruption. And disruption happens in the economy all the time. This is just one of those areas where we can predict with some confidence that it's going to come along. And, um, And really get on top of it, because if if investors and entrepreneurs are doing their job properly, they're not thinking about the world today. And remember what I said at the start of this, that today the alternatives to fossil fuels are cheaper. They're thinking 10 years down the line. So the disruptions that we're seeing in the power sector and the automotive sector are just the start. Think about where those disruptions lie in the future. And I think probably many of those disruptions will come through that consumer offering that I talked about. So you will not find this in any report that we've produced, but imagine a world where we are much more electrified in our economy, where you are using electricity as a consumer for Yes, for the devices in your home, but also for your your transport uh, and also for your heat. Now, in that world, why would we have the same kind of consumer offering for the for 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 electricity? We might well have the kind of Netflix style subscription service, for example, which would give much more opportunity to manage that system on your behalf somewhere else. That kind of big change that's coming, the change that might come through electric vehicles, and the fact that we won't actually all own our vehicles is another one. You know. These kind of disruptions are, are really are a, a product of the fact that we have a more electrified economy rather than a product of net zero itself. So thinking through the implications of net zero and talking less about net zero itself, but more, but more about those implications is probably where uh, the big opportunities lie. So if you're thinking in that way about it, you're probably thinking the right way. Thank you. And 
thank you everybody for all of the questions that are coming in. I, I just can't keep up <laughs> with all of those. So what I'm going to do is uh, collate them and then perhaps ask Chris to, to answer them offline and then I can dis distribute that a little bit later. But as we come towards the end, Chris, is there anything, any sort of final message you'd like to leave with all of our listeners? Is there, what would be the, the biggest takeaway that you could give us all today? Well, the biggest, I mean, the most important thing is to, is to, is to genuinely believe it's happening now. I mean, I think it, it, it used to be a kind of question. Are we really going to focus on this? I, think, I really think we are. Um, and uh, I, you know, from my perspective, that's going to give it a, an additional momentum. Those of us, and I, I doubt many are on this call, but those of us who are still kind of King Canute style, kind of standing in front of the waves, kind of casting them back, you're, they're, they're, I suspect they're going to be disappointed. So the big message for me is that it is happening now. Climate change itself is also happening. So this is becoming more and more of an issue. And you can see that very obviously in, in, in the US politics that are playing out at the moment. Joe Biden is, is, is in a real force for good when it comes to the climate. But more importantly, he's opening up the discussion of climate. I mentioned Texas earlier. And you know, people's, people in, in America are now becoming much more attuned to the fact that there is a change happening and something has to be done about it. So... But for me, I, I would rather that we were discussing this in a positive, optimistic way. And I think that's my message to you, too, is that instead of viewing this as a threat, think of it as a condition, I suppose, for all the things that will happen over the next 20 years, something that we're all going to get comfortable with. But I might just at a final point say that I don't think we will have success if all we do is talk about net zero. We're going to have to almost forget net zero and instead get into the, the changes that underpin net zero. And there, that's for me the most interesting uh, thing of all. It, 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 it turns out that getting to net zero involves us doing things that will make buildings nicer to live in, uh, transport systems less polluting of the air. We'll come to you know, encourage more and more green spaces that we can enjoy in our lives to the consumption patterns that will help with, with uh, net zero happen to involve us eating healthier diets. I think beneath net zero is a set of much more interesting and more motivating factors that should really matter for the for your day-to-day -day lives rather than net zero itself. So I, I really wouldn't want to get to the stage where everyone is walking around talking about net zero all the time. I think some of my friends in the green community would quite like that, but I would hate it. So I think it'd be much better that we were talking about the things underneath that that really I think are much more motivating for progress in the future. And if you're thinking that way about it, then I think you're probably you're probably you're probably stealing a march on those who are still wondering what net zero is and its implications. Just get ahead of it. Think positively about all the change that's coming and those opportunities that we talked about are gonna spring out. Thank you. I mean, clearly that fits really well with where we as a business want to be, which is creating a future that we all, we all wanna live in. Um, so that's a lovely way to finish. And thank you so much for your time today. It's been really interesting, really insightful. And I will be following up with a ton of questions that have been coming in from everybody. So a lot of engagement um, and we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Kat. And thanks to everyone else.